John Bagnudo has more qualifications to do with health and nutrition than most people have had hot dinners. Which is why when he talks about how reducing carbs can have a positive effect on cancer treatments, you should start to listen. Here's his story. Good morning, John, and welcome back to the Low Carb Paleo Show. Good morning. It's great to see you again. It's our pleasure to have you back. Uh, good morning, Mark. How are you doing today? Wonderful, thank you. I'm glad that you are both looking absolutely wonderful as well. Thank you. Uh, you look the best of all, Mark. Well, as I said, must my makeup lady does a wonderful job. Yeah, it must be that, yeah. So, uh, John, thank you for coming back on our show. And um, just for our listeners that were now present on episode number one, could you tell us about you and what you do, how you got there, and so on? Sure. I uh, am the director of nutritional education uh, for a company called Functional Formularies, who makes the world's only organic whole foods enteral formula for people that are in critical situations and need enteral support, which i.e. tube feeding, uh, they cannot swallow or eat normally, uh, nor orally. So among that role, I, uh, you know, serve as a consultant for a couple other organizations. I, I lead programs in different places around the world, uh, from here in the United States to Costa Rica and elsewhere. I have a master's in public health and a PhD in um, human nutrition and food science. And yeah, I think that would probably suffice for now. Thank you for sharing that. Um, can you remind us the name of the product that is used to feed um, sick people? Yeah, sure. Our, our company, Functional Formularies, manufactures currently two products. One is called Liquid Hope. That's our adult formula. And then we have a pediatric formula, which is called Nourish, and that's targeted for children, you know, up until about age eight. Interestingly, though, and it's certainly um, very pertinent to the nature of this show and this recording, you know, we, we also manufacture in the process of developing uh, very low-carbohydrate sports uh, products that can be used by ultra-endurance athletes, whether that be a cyclist, a long-distance runner, Anything that would require prolonged demand, physical, physical demand, you know, I think there's an overwhelming body of evidence that fat is the, the body's preferred fuel. So why aren't there more sports formulas that are fat-based? And our, you know, our company's really, we've, we've noted that uh, over the past couple of years. And so we've developed a, a very interesting product that should be entering the market very, very soon. Good, good. That's going to help the Tour de France uh, cyclists. Then. Well, I know. <laughs> I think some of them they, they need all the help they can get, given the you know the past couple of days. Can you can you imagine three weeks straight in a row um, cycling every single day by you know long mountain climbing? Oh. I mean, it's just uh, the. The physical effort has got to be tremendous. I don't think there is an, an endurance event that places as much demand on the human body or is as taxing as the Tour de France. And mm. when you take a look at the evolution of what many of these cyclists now eat, a large number of these uh, cyclists train on a very low-carbohydrate diet, and they really do everything they can to make their bodies burn predominantly fat and you know hmm. it's it's uh i think that is a that is a, the best example of a sport where if you don't support your body from a nutritional perspective uh you know it's a very very short career if yeah. if you're able to compete at all so it's it's a really interesting event i i find it so fascinating on many levels right right i've noticed that uh sometimes besides the water bottles they have little uh, pockets that they mm -hmm. they rip up with their with their teeth, and then they just like squeeze into their mouth. Do you happen to know typically what's in this um, plastic pouch? Yeah, I do. Unfortunately, many of those pouches are very very carbohydrate dense gels or paste mm -hmm. that all that also contain caffeine, um, sometimes electrolytes and antioxidants. But for the most part, those products are one form of dextrose or sugar uh, of some sort because it's quick energy and they have a constant supply of those during the during the event so 
you know, I, that's, you know, that's the reality of sports nutrition up until, up until very recently. It's been a sugar-based industry, sports nutrition. And I think that, right. you know, m- many people have really challenged that in the last several years. And it's, it's starting to shift, which is encouraging. And I, I think that while many of, many of those athletes do use a product like that on race day, I would say that less and less of them are using that product during their training. Uh, you know, they might turn to that when they want any possible advantage and they don't really look at it as a downside or having consequences because they're only using it uh, at, at times when, you know, they have the highest demand on their bodies. But I, right. I think we're going to get to a point where even those gels are going to start to disappear in favor of less carbohydrate and, and more fat. Mm-hmm. Right, right. I, um, one of the company we're talking to um, has these little patches of uh, like almond butter, cashew uh-huh. butter, and you know, and that could be a good source. Just also, you just tear it up and you just uh, pop it in your mouth. Absolutely. I've noticed that uh, maybe you should consult for the um, the American cyclist team as well. <laughs> yeah, I think that you know you have. Uh, really uh, just an inordinate number of professional sports teams, not only in cycling, but in many areas of sports that mm-hmm. really need help nutritionally. Uh, you know, right. you think that it's a multi-billion dollar industry, whether you're talking about the NCAA here, you know, in the United States, or you're talking about, uh, you know, the cycling industry. It's fascinating, Alan, that more athletes are not encouraged from a very young age or from an early stage of their training and development to support their body uh, in, a, in a better way. So I, I, th- I think a lot of people need help, that, that's for sure. Yeah, I'm, I've noticed that most, I mean, actually all of the cyclists are very lean. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, do, uh, do you know what kind of diet they follow usually? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of these athletes, you know, up until again, very recently have been on very, you know, very high carbohydrate diets in an effort to replete glycogen, which is, of course, burned and utilized at high intensities when cyclists go anaerobic, whether that's in a sprint or on a long climb. You know, and and unfortunately, leanness does not always confer proper metabolic adaptations, whether that be in sports or in everyday life. Many people look at leanness and a low body fat content mm-hmm. as, uh, as an indication that they can eat whatever they want. And, and while that may be true with respect to their body composition, not having right. any you know, trend towards obesity, you know, people don't really understand that our ability to burn fat and our metabolic capacity, which needs to be fat-based, it can be off. It can be highly out of balance, even though someone may have leanness. So whether someone is a weekend warrior or an elite cyclist, you know, I don't think we want to use the body fat uh, composition as a litmus test for whether or not they are fat adapted or not. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, you know, cyclists and long distance runners and many other athletes, they burn so much uh, energy. They have such an enormous amount of demand placed on their metabolism that they, you know, can eat whatever they want, whether it's poor or great, and still have that leanness. So what I try to educate athletes around is, you know, don't look at your body composition as an indication that you're supporting it. You know, that that body composition is going to happen when you train for three or four hours a day, regardless of what you eat. You could live on, you you could live on French fries and soda and things like that. And while you may have that leanness, you'll be malnourished. Uh, you know, on a particular level, depending on the micronutrient, and you'll have higher levels of inflammation. Your body will be really, you know, just underserved. That would be the best way I'd describe it. Mm. Right. I know. I live on French fries. <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't have guessed that given our, our previous conversations. But. No, I'm, I'm joking, but uh, as you know, <clears throat> Fourth uh, of July is, you know, a big celebration yeah. in America, and right. uh, my my lady friend absolutely had to have a hot dog, and since I don't I don't need that kind of mystery meat, um, I just ate <laughs> fries. <laughs> I just ate fries, but she had to have a hot dog for Fourth of July, so we we went and we got one. Yeah. Um, I'm intrigued that you called it mystery meat. Mystery meat, yes, yes. Yeah. There was a video, I posted a video recently that shows how they're made. Yeah, I know, I saw that. It was horrible. 
is is disgusting. <laughs> how do you manage to fool people for so long? I don't know how they do it. Well, I mean, uh, it was that bad. I wouldn't put that stuff in my bin. <laughs> right. No. You wouldn't feed it to your dogs, probably. Oh, gosh, no. Sorry, bin. That's no. a trash can for the... Uh, Sort of for, North the, American people. for the Americans, yeah. yeah. So back back on uh, liquid hope and nourish. Uh, have you made improvements, or um, do you have like different flavors, or what's new with it? No, we really just have two two basic formulas: a pediatric and an adult. But we're working on new products that you know will not necessarily be for an enteral nutrition uh, re requirement in terms of a population, but they'd be for people that may be either outdoor recreation, uh, uh, you know active uh, people who are spending a lot of time hiking and, and backpacking. Uh, they could be used by military personnel as MREs because they are made with very simple whole organic ingredients. They have very high fat contents, predominantly olive oil and coconut oil. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, we're, gonna, we're doing all we can to, to head off the ridiculous questions that have been raised by the American Heart Association regarding the safety of coconut oil in the average person. Yeah, diet. yeah. So I mean, I, I've spent a good amount of time uh, writing and discussing this on the phone with various entities, but it's just ridiculous to think that, you know, such a healthy fat that's been used by populations for thousands of years mm -hmm. uh, is being, you know, it's being maligned or uh, yeah, you know, villainized. Does. Yeah, I mean, this, this whole new thing that just came out with this week, uh, uh, American Heart Association claiming that saturated fats are bad for us. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's been going on for 50 years and it's been thoroughly debunked now. How do they, why do they stick f to this lie continuously? Well, I, think, <laughs> I think it's a, it's a great question. It's, it's a hard one for me to answer in terms of one particular reason. But the first thing I'd say is that dogma is something that is very, very difficult uh, to eliminate. And there is still this notion that if a food raises our cholesterol levels, that it is atherogenic or causes heart disease, when that has been debunked as well. We know that whether you're looking at total cholesterol or you're looking at LDL uh, cholesterol percentages, e even LDL has been shown to be highly protective. There was a great study published in the British, British Medical Journey Journal mm -hmm. just uh, less than a year ago showed that elderly people living in the UK who had the highest LDLs lived the longest and had the best quality of life. So, you know, I think that's a big part of the problem is that the American Heart Association is still looking at total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol as being risk factors for heart disease when we know now that it's the qualities of the LDL. It's the ratio of triglycerides to HDL or high-density lipoproteins. That's what really makes a difference, and that's not being acknowledged enough. So that's a big part of the problem is how we are assessing a food's impact on health. Everybody's still using how it impacts cholesterol, and if butter or, or coconut oil it will raise someone's cholesterol levels 10 or 20 points, and it's looked at as being uh, very heart unfriendly, which is ridiculous because we know that saturated fat tends to make LDLs more larger and more buoyant, which makes them very resistant to oxidation. And let's be clear, inflammation and oxidation, those are the enemies of, of heart health. It's not the type right. of fat we're eating, right? So yeah. that's a big part of the problem. Then the other part I would say, Alan, and I, you know, again, this sounds, you know, too much like, a, I don't know, conspiracy of some sort, but con the canola oil industry and yeah. for, our, for our listeners that, you know, might not be familiar with what canola stands for, this is, you know, it, it's Canadian oil industry, low acid. Yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's, yeah. it's uh, oil made from rapeseed, rapeseed. Right, right. Yeah. right. Rape which seed. was... Rapeseed doesn't sound very marketing no. friendly, right? <laughs> no. Exactly. Let's, let's have some rapeseed. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, they're the biggest sponsor for the American Heart Association. So the canola yeah. industry, they give the most money to the American Heart Association, and you know, the last thing they want people to see is that saturated fat is okay, and, yeah. that, and, th and that they're highly polyunsaturated, industrially produced rapeseed oil yeah. is questionable at best. So I, you know, I think that there's a lot of reasons as to why the American Heart Association is not changing their message, despite, as you already mentioned, uh, you know, a really growing body of evidence that saturated fat is, is healthy. Okay, so, so we, we should, we should, so, yeah, we should remind people that, you know, all the scaremongering with uh, saturated fat uh, is trying to divert our attention from the real danger from oxidated 
uh, uh, corn, soy, uh, even peanut, and other highly processed oil, which are not only loaded with omega-6, but also oxidized and, mm -hmm. and dangerous. Absolutely. So we should definitely mention that and let people know that there's a dark side to this whole, it's like people, there's good fats and bad fats, and they should know the difference, and, and yeah. we should let them know the difference. So can you elaborate a little bit on the um, uh, oxidative the studies of uh, processed oil? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think people need to understand that the fats we eat ultimately become part of our cellular chemistry. So we have cell membranes, which are referred to as phospholipid bilayers. These are basically um, walls that wrap themselves around all of our cells, and they're predominantly made up of fat and cholesterol. And if you have a diet that's very high in these polyunsaturated oils, as you just mentioned, they will become a larger and larger percentage of that phospholipid bilayer. And what happens is when they become 15 or 20 percent of that cell membrane, it's, they're very volatile. They, they form free radicals very easily. They contribute to oxidation. And we know that these are the major enemies when it comes to the etiology or the processes of most chronic diseases. It's all about inflammation and oxidation. So why would we want to build our cell membranes out of highly flammable, reactive fats? You know, really, right. all mammals, not just humans, but all mammals need to have a cell wall or a cell membrane or this phospholipid bilayer that I'm talking about. They need to have it predominantly made up of saturated and monounsaturated fats, which are less reactive, mm -hmm. much more stable. Mm -hmm. Now, this becomes even more important when we start looking at the mitochondrial membrane. The mitochondria, mm -hmm. of course, is what produces all the energy for the body. And the mitochondria have high, high concentrations of, of reactive oxygen species because you're converting all the food you eat to energy there in the mitochondria. And that process generates these electrons that can be highly reactive and once the mitochondrial membrane is made up of too much of these highly polyunsaturated seed oils that we're talking about, they catch on fire and they become very leaky. They become, there's a pathology of the mitochondria that contributes to the aging process, to people having a higher risk for neurodegenerative diseases. And we're just seeing that now. I mean, you just take a look at the incidence of neurodegenerative diseases in this country here in the United States. And, I, and my, my feeling is it's very similar in Europe. Yeah. These, this incidence has exploded, and we're looking at a time frame now where people have been relying on these seed oils for a couple decades. So we would expect mm -hmm. to see a shift in this direction as the mitochondria of seed oil consumers, people who are cooking with these oils, who are getting a lot of fast food, which is made with these oils, yeah. who are also, and this should be noted, are maybe, if they're more health conscious, are snacking on large volumes of polyunsaturated nuts and seeds. I mean, I think yeah. have, having these things in moderation is fine, but yeah. you, you, you can't eat walnuts and, and sunflower seeds all day without there being some consequence. So I, I think, I feel very strongly that a diet high in polyunsaturated fats makes a person not only more at risk for inflammation, and as you mentioned, an omega-6 to omega-3 imbalance, but mm. also it really compromises mitochondrial health, which is neurological health. Yeah. Right. So let's not, let's keep the, the brain health issue uh, aside for a second, because I want to, I want to let people know that the, the, the process, the industrial process used to process these oil is, um, is turning these fats into dangerous fat because they are overheated, they are treated with chemicals, hexane, to extract as much as possible. All of this is toxic. So keeping in mind that our brain is about, what, 70, 80% fat? Yeah, at least. You, do, you want to keep your, the quality of your fat healthy so you can keep your brain healthy. So going back to what you were saying earlier, we do see a, a large increase of Alzheimer's disease and, and all sorts of brain-related uh, issues, and I believe strongly that they have something to do with these uh, polyunsaturated fats, you know, um, being overused. As, as do I, Alan. I think it's a perfect storm right now for the average human brain. You have a large amount of these very cheap, highly reactive, oxidized fats in the diet. You also have many uh, humans with brains that have become totally 
carbohydrate dependent. Yeah. You know, people can have insulin resistance of the brain, uh, which would not necessarily be assessed with a blood glucose reading. So they wouldn't be told they have diabetes, but their, their neurons, um, you know, are just totally in a um, sugar-based metabolism. And we need to use ketones, our brain, our nerves, and our brains in particular need to turn to ketones for a certain window of time every day on a regular basis so that they can maintain a certain amount of metabolic flexibility. And I think that many people have lost that metabolic flexibility because they're on a carbohydrate-based diet. They never fast. They are never without food for a, a significant window of time. And that really catches up with the brain. Right. And there's um, bad habit of snacking all the time. So yeah. but that's another issue. I know that I'm... I'm you know, you think that my lady friend would be aware of the fact that I know a thing or two about these issues, and she always screams murder every time I put butter on, on everything. Yeah, so I put butter in my coffee, I put butter <laughs> on my uh, toast, I put butter on, you know, she's, the thing that uh, drives her crazy is I eat a croissant and I put butter on, on top of it. <laughs> <laughs> she, she now it's good butter it's grass-fed it's high quality and it's yeah. not that much but she's so she's been so brainwashed by the system to believe that butter is bad for you that she she will still overreact when i use butter and that's just, i just like i'm done arguing with her about it i just say you know that's the way it is i'm french i love butter and that's yeah that's the way it is so um we should pay attention to the quality of our ingredients uh, and the source. And that's why for me, uh, for my dressing, it's only uh, extra virgin olive oil, organic. It's on, for cooking, it's only coconut oil. And I do eat a tablespoon in the morning, a tablespoon in the evening liquid, just straight up, you know, to help, you know, sure. uh, additional fat. And um, I, like, I, like I mentioned, I put butter in my uh, hot chocolate coffee in the morning. Uh, but it's not, I mean, when you, through the whole day, uh, if I get maybe three tablespoons altogether of healthy fats, that's it. Mm. You know? So, but meanwhile, people um, are not aware of the fact that every time they eat processed food or every time they eat a, a, a commercial dressing, they they do ingest all of these adulterated fats that are not good yeah. for them. So they need to pay attention to what's in their food. Yeah, I, I think that level of consciousness is probably the most important part of, the, uh, part of this whole process of inquiry for people to try to be healthier, um, to have a higher quality of life, and to be connected more with their planet and with the way food is grown. I mean, most people, unfortunately, they shop and they eat at some level that is unconscious. They just yes. are not aware of what they shovel into their mouth and they buy things without really, as you've indicated, wondering how these oils are made or what's in that dressing that they're using. And it adds up by the end of the day, you know, many people have eaten bowls, you know, not tablespoons, but they've eaten bowls of very low quality food that contain you know, chemicals, oxidized fats, high glycemic loads, the list goes on and on. Right, right. Now, moving along to, um, you have a new webinar coming up, and uh, it's about cancer and the effects of carbohydrates on cancer. Can you yeah. um, give us a, a, a lesson on that? Yeah, sure. It's something that's very near and dear to my heart because I find in the area of oncology, uh, too often, patients or the families of loved ones uh, who have cancer are told, eat whatever you want, uh, you know, let chemotherapy, radiation, let the surgery, let that do the work, and that it doesn't make a difference in terms of what you eat. We have no evidence. This is what I repeatedly hear by, from oncologists. We have no evidence that, uh, that what you eat or a dietary intervention is going to affect the outcome with a particular type of cancer, and I feel very strongly um, that the opposite of that is true. I have met with people over the 20 years that I've called myself a nutritionist who have done some remarkable things. I don't like to use the word cure because I believe we always have cancer in our bodies and I, I believe cancer is more of an imbalance or a chronic disease. I don't think it's something that just happens to people, which is unfortunately the perception that most people have. They think, oh, I got cancer when I was 45. 
And, you know, that's not how it works. I mean, you have cancer in, in the body all the time. It's just whether or not your immune system is able to find those cancer cells and prevent them from forming something that is more organized, i.e. a tumor. And that mm. requires, you know, less sugar, less insulin, less inflammation, a better, more immune, uh, active immune system, vitamin D, you know, a lot of different components to the, how you maintain a lower level of cancer cells and cancer that's not as well organized. But, you know, sugar is the biggest risk factor, in my opinion, because cancer cells are highly glycolytic. And for those uh, the listeners that might not be familiar with this word glycolytic, it means that cancer cells really need to use sugar and carbohydrates as a fuel source. They can't really burn fat. They're not good at burning ketones. And if you eat too much protein, then they can convert uh, some of these amino acids to glucose in a process that us food geeks call gluconeogenesis, mm -hmm. which is something that the body has uh, to generate sugar when there's not much other than carbohydrates uh, in, available. And it's just protein and fat. The body can convert a lot of the protein that we eat to sugar. But, you know, that takes a significant amount of protein to get to that level. So, you know, I, I think that this webinar on July 28th will be uh, very enlightening for many people, whether they're a health professional, such as a physician that works with cancer patients or a family member of someone who's recently been diagnosed and is trying to understand what they can do to better support uh, the person that is, you know, in this fight with cancer. But the, the program is, is very clinically based. I like to say that we, I, you know, I include well over 40 references of papers that look at things like the ketogenic diet, uh, the use of turmeric and other uh, plant compounds that contain very potent anti-cancer substances in them, things that have the ability to increase autophagy, which is cell recycling, uh, apoptosis, which is cell programmed death, and that have anti-angiogenesis properties, which means a food such as in the case of leeks, lemons, uh, oily fish, they have the ability to prevent blood vessels, um, if they're consumed regularly enough, to influence or inhibit the growth of blood vessels into tumors. That's very important for slowing down the growth of, of many forms of cancer. So this, this webinar, Alan, as you, uh, as you mentioned this, this will cover a lot of these different topics, but the core to it, the core to the talk is on the Warburg effect, which is how cancer cells need sugar to thrive. And if people are told, eat whatever you want, um, eat everything in moderation, you know, make sure you don't eliminate fruit. I, you know, if I tell people that have cancer that are in a fight for their life, you want to keep fruit to an absolute minimum of your diet. Maybe a little bit of, you know, raspberries or something like that. But you want your the sugar content of your diet to be incredibly low. Mm -hmm. Another issue uh, with cancer, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that cancer cells love to live in an acidic environment, and they hate. Uh, oxygen. So can you address that? Well, it's, a, it's an interesting topic. I think it's somewhat of a slip, slippery slope because, you know, your body takes great efforts to maintain a, B, a pH of 7.39. So I would agree that most of the incredibly beneficial anti-cancer foods, if you take a look at those foods where when people eat larger amounts of them, there's some protection against cancer. Uh, in, the right. case of, in the case of breast cancer, for instance, we know brassicas, uh, which are things like collard greens, kale, uh, you know, broccoli raw, Brussels sprouts. They have great anti-cancer properties. These foods right. also have the ability to influence the pot potential renal acid load, which is called the PRAL, P-R-A-L equation, taught in medical school, especially to those people who are going to become nephrologists or study kidneys and renal, renal system. We know that, and that prowl, by the way, that represents whether or not the body is geared up towards more of an acid load or an alkaline load. Mm -hmm. So I, I think there's some truth to this, although I try to refrain when I present this information to uh, whether it's to a, a medical audience or physicians. I, I really don't get too caught up in the acid alkaline environment of a cancer cell because the body, as I was saying, it maintains very tight regulation on the pH of our blood and our chemistry. And anything greater than 7.39, it starts to become too alkaline. And anything less than 7.39 that becomes too acidic, it's yeah. usually compensated for very quickly by the bones giving up calcium. Uh, in sports, we start to breathe at a higher rate to blow off more uh, you know, carbon dioxide in an effort to shift that, uh, that, that acid load. So I, right. I, would, I would say that on a in, from an in vitro from an in vitro perspective, when you look at cancer cells under highly oxygenated 
uh, systems in, in research under highly uh, alkaline systems. It's very favorable. But when you take mm -hmm. the, these results to an in vivo perspective, mm -hmm. I, there's so many things that would interfere with it becoming too acidic or too alkaline that I, I generally stay away from that when I give talks. Right. But it, it goes to the point that the sugar is highly acidic. You know, I think it depends on the, the source of the sugar, but in, in many cases, yes. Oh, right. Uh, okay, let's rephrase that. Uh, processed and added sugar is highly acidic, not natural sugar, not, uh, you know, fruit-based, yeah. you know, fructose and so on. Sure. Well, there's also a lot of acid added to things like um, sweets and so forth to give, um, you know, a bit of a tang to the... Uh, for the sweet, uh, the candy, as you might call it, um, you know, it's, yeah, it's one, but, one of those. Yeah, that's not necessarily the kind of acid we're talking about when, in this case, like, for example, lemon, it tastes acid, but it's really alkaline. Yeah, same when with it tomatoes. Turns into the Toma body. Toma right, tomatoes are highly yeah. alkaline, even though they yeah. have... So the, the acidity is not what we're measuring with the pH of a food, whether it's in a glass or on our plate. We're really talking about if I had to summarize this with the most simple, uh, the cliff notes of the Prowl equation, the potential renal acid load, it's determined by a food's potassium intake, that makes it more alkaline, and to a lesser extent, a food's calcium and magnesium content. So foods that are high in potassium and that are also high in calcium and magnesium tend to be typically very alkaline in terms of what they offer the body. A sweet potato is an enormous... Uh, alkaline load, excuse me, because a sweet potato is an incredible source of potassium, one of the best. So mm -hmm. are things like spinach, Swiss chard, beet greens. These are highly alkaline, yet when you come down to things like hard cheeses, cheeses that have had all the whey removed from them, they're very right. acidic because you lose all the potassium when you, when you lose the whey from a dairy product. Whereas yogurt, yogurt is pretty much neutral. I, yogurt is one of my um, you know, favorite, but also it has a high to moderate carbohydrate content, depending on you know whose whose perspective you're taking. I think from from our perspective, we would acknowledge that you know yogurt has a significant amount of carbohydrates. But I look at yogurt, despite its naturally occurring sugar content, to be a wonderful addition to most the diets of most because it contains the beneficial cultures. It should be high fat. It will have right. all the beneficial substances from a grass-fed cow. Um, so, I, you know, that would be a, a pH-neutral food. It can have a, a slightly alkaline effect depending on, uh, you know, what the cow was fed or grazed on. But, yeah, I think that's a, you know, it's an interesting point that you make given, you know, how much attention has been given this, you know, acid-alkaline balance. I think it's worth, it's worth talking about. Yeah, and, um, um, you know, one, one thing I do every day is I take in uh, uh, blue-green algae for... Uh, to add uh, excess chlorophyll, which I may not get enough during the day. I mean, I, I make a point of eating a fresh salad every day, but uh, the excess chlorophyll will add oxygen to my blood and, and help fight off uh, cancer cells. Um, so without being too simple here, uh, our goal as humans would be to support a human system to fight off cancer cells that happen all the time, right? Mm -hmm. And only when our immune system becomes weak because we overburden it with bad quality food, you know, of course, there's also the environment, the water quality, so on and so forth. Then our job is to support the immune system by eating the quality food that will keep it strong. Is that, does that, is that a decent point? I think that's a good, I think that's a good summary. I think right. there are a lot, of, a lot of details. Iodine is critical for a healthy immune system. Zinc, of course, many people are malnourished with respect to both iodine and zinc. Interestingly enough, uh, when it comes to iodine, it's not necessarily the general population that is at greater risk for iodine deficiency. It's your, your most health conscious people who don't eat anything from the ocean. They don't right. use iodized salt and they eat large amounts of kale and other brassicas, which contain goitrogens in them. So and with zinc, it typically is the lacto-ovo vegetarians that suffer the most because they have eggs and they eat cheese, which really inhibit zinc absorption. So, you know, I think there's a lot to this, but I would say that in summary, you have to be well-nourished and you have to reduce the carbohydrate load on your body so that your white blood cells are more effective. And you have to make sure that you either get sunlight or you take vitamin D because most of our macrophages 
or white blood cells that hunt cancer cells, they are more active and are more vigilant if their vitamin D receptors are occupied by that very, very critical hormone. So, right. yeah, there's a lot to it. That's, that's also a deficiency vitamin D that's... Um, very common. Of course, uh, yeah, very common. Yeah. Uh, so where do we get, uh, I'd like to be on your list for that seminar and how do we get information about the seminar? Yeah, sure, you could go to functionalformularies.com, www.functionalformularies.com. That's our company's website and you could sign up for the webinar there. Uh, I think we have to limit it to the first 1500 or the first 2000 or something like that. Um, but it's, it, they're very educational and we try to talk about things that are clinical enough for our health professionals, but also can be easily grasped by the layperson. Great. Mark? Super job. I mean, coming back to you know, what you were talking about just, just now, um, adding yogurt to the diet. Yeah. I totally agree with you. The thing I find most annoying now is uh, unless you're going to an artisan producer, it's almost impossible to get yogurt with any fat in it. It's all labeled up 0% fat, no super low fat. And uh, I want the fat. Yeah, me too. Mm. So it's, what's uh, your, what's it's, your fairly easy. it's fairly easy to find, uh, at least here in Austin, I get my yogurt full fat. There's no whole, whole milk for the fat. It's a, local pro it's a local producer. It's not like a major corporation. Yeah. But, I mean, this is know. exactly what I was saying. You have to go to yeah. an, artisan, an artisan shop or producer or a delicatessen. Yeah. Or uh, a no, I'm, fine. I'm finding my grocery store. They sell it. Uh, I mean, at least here in Austin. I don't know uh, the rest. But White Mountains in America is they're, they're sold pretty much everywhere. Uh, so that's one, only one example, but there's also other companies in America that do uh, certified organic full-fat yogurt. Mm. Yes. Yeah, I could, I could share a few brand names if that's appropriate. Yes. It would be, yeah, why not? You know, I, 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 yeah, I like the things that people need to look out for. Okay. Um, I do like the Bulgarian-style White Mountain yogurt, Alan, that you referenced, and they are available yes. pretty much across the U.S., and I've seen them in areas of Canada. Right. Uh, and then in the Midwest of the United States, you have Snowville Creamery. Yeah. Snowville Creamery is excellent, and I can talk a little bit more about some of these details, why I choose these brands. And then you have, uh, here in the Northeast, you have Side Hill Creamery, Side Hill Yogurt, which is out of Massachusetts. And then you have mm -hmm. Vermont Butterworks Farm, which you'd, if you're looking for a high-fat yogurt, I think you'd really like that, Mark. It's uh, very, very high-fat. And, and here's mm -hmm. the key and that I, I think many people fail to appreciate. In addition to these yogurts being full fat and being grass fed. Yes. I think it's critical. I think it's absolutely critical that people identify and choose a yogurt that is from either a Guernsey cow or a Jersey cow. And the reason being is these cows not only produce higher fat milks than a Holstein. A Holstein is unfortunately a big percentage of the U.S. dairy herd. Right. And it's in comparison to the other two milks, it's very unhealthy. Holstein milk is predominantly A1 casein. That's a type of casein that is not that compatible with human physiology. The, okay. Guernsey, the Guernsey cow, which is from the Channel Islands, that Guernsey cow is all A2. It's the most compatible form of casein that you'll find in any bovine or cow species. Now, goat, I think goat milk yogurt is phenomenal. And another brand for people to look yes. for is right, Redwood Hill. Redwood Hill Farm. They're out of That's Northern right. California. That's yeah. what I get. That's, That's, what I get. That's a really good product. So, you know, I think, it's, Mark, it can be a challenge. When I travel other areas of the world, I, I, I've noticed, as you mentioned, many areas, because of the, last, the trend for the last couple of decades has been low-fat, low-fat or skim. It can be yeah. hard to find a full-fat yogurt. Here in the United States, I think there's been enough of a movement here in the last decade that yeah. it's out there. Um, but I think people have to look beyond just full-fat. That's important to me. Grass-fed, full-fat, and then I think people have to look on that container for the word Guernsey, Jersey, or a type of goat. Yeah. Right, you know, the, right. These can be overwhelming details, but I feel very strongly that they're important. No, no, no that's, no, that's the point I've been trying to get across. You know, it's, we right. are enlightened. We know what to look for. Mm. But right, unfortunately, right. most people who go to the, you know, the supermarket, um, they are just going to choose what's on the yogurt aisle. And they're going to look along and they're going to take the, you know, drink, drink the, um, uh, the soda that says zero fat is good for me. I'll yeah. take that. So, you know, right. What I'm trying to get across is that 
the marketing of these products has forced people into a position where they don't know any different. Yeah. Right. I have a couple more comments. Uh, there's another brand I, I like. It's called Brown Cow. Okay. That's also uh, certified organic or with the, the, the fat on top. You know how typically when it's not homogenized, sure. the fat goes to the top. And mm. this, this company uh, actually allows the fat to go to the top. So I know that it's, uh, and it's also certified organic. Another point that I'd like to make too is that the way I eat my yogurt is that uh, I, I buy it plain, non-sweetened. Non whole mm -hmm. and then if i feel like adding a little preserve to it then i control that sure. otherwise if you buy this commercial one where all the the preserve or the sugar is already in there you have no control over it and that typically they are very sweet yeah yeah and uh, recently i discovered a sheep yogurt that's really good mm. also yeah that's yeah. good stuff yeah thank you mark sorry <laughs> Uh, you mentioned right right at the top of the uh, the program um, high fat fasts or fasting with a high fat diet. Yeah. Would you like to sort of elucidate on that a bit? Yeah, sure. I, I think that um, it's good to give the body a uh, fairly lengthy window of time in comparison to how most people eat and live, whether that be 12 hours or 13 hours of organ rest where you're not asking a lot of your body to metabolize and package nutrients, or it be a 16 to 18 hour, uh, like almost intermediate fast. Hmm. What most people don't realize is that carbohydrates and protein break a fast, whereas a moderate amount of fat, whether it be in the morning, uh, you know, Alan, you mentioned you put a little butter in your coffee. Hmm. People, people could also have uh, a breakfast of spinach and maybe some other non-starchy vegetables sauteed in a little butter or coconut oil. You could have a little bit of bone broth, which has very little other than fat and minerals. And these things, Mark, they don't really break this, uh, the definition of a fast when you look at things mm. metabolically. Metabolically, if the body's eating just fat and then let's say high fiber vegetables, very important processes for our immune system and for various aspects of our physiology they stay upregulated. And again, these processes are called, like I mentioned earlier with cancer, autophagy, uh, apoptosis, and the body's really cleaning house and it's maintaining a higher level of efficiency within our cellular structure when we have this uh, higher fat intermediary fasting. Excellent. So, I mean, you would, you would then suggest that it's a good practice for people to do this sort of partial... I would. 16 hour fast yeah as an everyday practice once a week or what would you say is a well best? i i think people can do really well with a 12 to 13 hour fast i mean that means yeah. if you had dinner at six o'clock at night you don't eat at 8 30 or 9 and you actually wait till around seven the next morning to eat and yeah. i think that's what i do yeah that's beautiful and i think that can work really well for most people i think some people will benefit a little bit more from having a 16 to 18 hour fast and, you know, for them, maybe they need to have some butter in the coffee or they need to have that little bit of fat so that they don't feel edgy or unbalanced in the morning. Mm. Yeah. And you don't feel hungry like that either. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, something I've been doing for a long, long time now. Trying to, trying to stop eating around about 6 o'clock in the evening and not eating again till 9 or 10 in, during yeah. the day. It works well. Absolutely. Super job. Well, that's all the questions I've got. Um, I would like to come back to, um, if you like, the, the, the core part of your business, which is the, the tube feeding nourishment. Yeah. Now, I, I know that's going from strength to strength from the conversations we've had before. Um, I think also it would be good for you just to explain briefly how that, how, what type of people that can help and how it can help them. Yeah. So our, our products are... In addition to having no added sugar whatsoever, the only source of carbohydrates in these enteral formulas comes from sweet potatoes, carrots, uh, there are some peas and chickpeas in there. We need to have a, a variety of fiber in these formulas for good digestive health. And because we're being used in critical care units around the world, hospitals and you know most physician uh, mandated protocols here for, for tube feeding require 
a maximum of 38% fat and, you know, the carbohydrates are of course still emphasized as they are with, you know, the USDA guidelines and things along those lines. So we have to play within that framework and our product has very little sugar. The carbohydrates are again from vegetables, root vegetables in particular. The fat is predominantly olive oil. We also use an organic uh, cold pressed flax oil because people who are in critical care units need a source of essential fatty acids. Uh, and flax oil works. A fish oil would not work in, in, in the products that we have for mm. a variety of reasons. So our products are totally organic. We know uh, the sourcing of each ingredient inside and out. Meticulous, uh, meticulous care has been, has been used in the development of both of these along the way by our CEO, uh, Robin Gentry McGee. She's who developed these products. And, you know, everything is really the best it could possibly be for a patient, as you asked, who could benefit from this. You know, anybody that requires tube feeding because they have either lost the ability to eat orally or swallow, whether that's because of, you know, some type of head trauma injury, uh, for people who need diets that are more liquid-like uh, because they've had some type of surgery, abdominal or digestive tract surgery, our products are used by a very, very wide variety of patients um, with just, you know, such a vast difference in their situation but we are the only product out there that doesn't use a fruit juice concentrate as its source of carbohydrates um, you know we use only organic whole food products we have a significant amount of fermentable fiber uh, you know it's really there's nothing like it out there in the world and now we're you know we're in the process of developing new products that we hope to take to athletes and to people who also require an exceptional level of support because of the situation they're in Right. Uh, we should probably remind people that the the typical feed uh, liquid they get in hospital is pure crap. It's processed yeah. uh, uh, no, corn it's not syrup. No, no, it's dirty crap. Uh, it's uh, you know corn syrup and uh, other. It's such. a liquid candy bar. It's totally a yeah. liquid candy yeah. bar. Yeah. And it's 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 horrible when you're trying to heal. Your body is trying to heal, and. Uh, uh, going back to uh, addressing that, I remember Robin mentioned that there was some issues with, uh, was it the USDA or the FDA regarding your product? Uh, the FDA. Okay, and all of this has been solved, I suppose, right? <laughs> well, yeah, it has. Basically, we had so many testimonials on our website from patients or their families whose lives had been affected in a very positive way by using our formula. Uh, they had regained a particular area of health that had eluded them until they switched onto our product. And, you know, as you just mentioned, it's very hard to recover from any type of uh, major injury, illness, surgery, you know, major event when you are on a product that is predominantly not our product, but the conventional enteral formula is made up of corn syrup solids, casein, and it's all A1 casein. We just talked about that briefly with the yogurt. Uh, a variety of chemicals. All of the oils are highly processed industrial seed oils. You know, when you take a look at those ingredients, you, I'm amazed that anybody walks out of a situation where they require enteral nutrition and they, they come out of it. Okay, because you're really throwing a lot at the body that's not compatible with it. So your, your point is, I think, a very important one. Our product not only is made with all these ingredients, but we don't have any of the usual suspects, so to speak, that can keep people mired in health issues when they're in a critical care unit. So it's a very, very unique situation that we present to hospitals and to care providers. They have to choose now between something that is more like whole food, real food. It's just highly blended so that it can be passed through a very small tube, or they can choose business as usual, which is, again, it's, it's mostly garbage. The FDA took issue with these testimonials that were on our webpage because they felt that it was uh, unfair to advertise our product as being, uh, <laughs> as being such, a, such a potential solution to issues. So we, we removed right. all of that from our website, and we also had to take off the quote, which isn't a quote we made. It's a quote, of course, by Hippocrates, the very famous right. Greek physician, and it yeah. said, let thy food be thy medicine. And all we did was we put that on the website, and we had Hippocrates underneath it, but they said that that suggested our food was a cure. So right, right. We, we, I think we resolve these things uh, for the time being. Uh, but once, as you know, once you present something that is very contrary to the way business is usually conducted, you start to come under a, a very intense lens of, 
inspection and right, right, right. And right. We, and yeah, we yeah. ruffled yeah. a lot of well, feathers. It's it's not just that the FDA is in bed with all the pharmaceutical industry that make yeah. uh, you know I don't know how this how, how much <clears throat> I don't know how much they charge for these bags, but it's it's outrageous, yeah. you know, for these uh, feeding bags. Um, so people should know, I guess. I mean, they can buy directly from you, but uh, at which hospital? And you know, I don't expect you to list the whole. Yeah. But well the most important thing people understand, Alan, is that we are covered by insurance in more than 95% of cases. Wow. That's huge. I mean, right. you know, Medicare, you name it, Medicaid. Now, the bottom line is not only is this coverage possible, but we have a full-time support team at our offices in Ohio that will help people get this coverage if there's any opposition to the process. So the people just have to demand it. If they demand it and say, it's my right to have food that is nourishing, um, we, we think it's a, an example of basic human rights to have access yeah. to the food that you want. Yeah. And, and we you. really try to encourage people to voice that and ask for this product. And we're not doing this strictly from a you know, financial uh, perspective. Our, our company, from the top person, Robin, all the way down to uh, the people that answer the phone there, we really believe that people have the right to high quality food that's a big part of our company's mission and we do everything we can to help people find that coverage but yes people can buy it from our website They're, we're in hospitals now all over the world and we're having a hard time keeping up with demand because the response has just been so phenomenal over the past couple of years right you should I'm, I'm uh, you should be pleased to hear that actually because the last last time you were on and i when robin was on you were finding it difficult to to break through that um that mindset that people have that they have to do what the hospital tells them they, yeah. they cannot mm -hmm. you know they were reluctant to demand their right for good nutrition yeah and yeah that's a very important thing to remind to our listeners that you have the right to demand what's best for you don't let the doctors and the uh, you know the system dictate for you what you should keep uh, use to stay healthy um, good example, and um, I'm sure you've heard that before uh, on the show, is that when my son was in the hospital for a, a big uh, bad car accident, uh, when I saw what they were feeding him, I went to the roof. I mean, I just like I couldn't believe they gave him. Uh, I mean, that was uh, after eight hours of surgery, they fed him uh, chicken fried check, uh, chicken with uh, barely defrosted vegetable, you know, frozen frozen vegetables and you want to guess what the dessert was chili jello yeah jello yeah. all right so when i saw that i raised hell and uh we managed my ex-wife and i we managed to sneak in homemade food soups and uh you know herbal medicine and uh supplements and all sorts of good stuff to help him get better but uh you know, we were lucky that the nurse allowed us to do that because she said it's against policy. Yeah. We're not we're not allowed to let you bring in outside food. Yeah, it's unfortunate. They don't want real food uh, entering the equation because they feel that it has too many unknowns, which are, you know, substances that they can't quantify from a highly refined product. Uh, fiber is our big concern. I mean, not our concern as a company, but many physicians oppose our product because it contains fiber, whereas most mm -hmm. of your highly refined milkshake type enteral formulas are just corn syrup solids and, you know, uh, casein and things that contain no fiber. And they, they look at fiber as being a very, very high risk ingredient. But I, I, I quickly try to t turn their attention to the process of the microbiome generating anti-inflammatory substances when the bacteria in our gut have something to work on and how quickly right. things go in the wrong direction when there's a, a void in fiber you start losing major families of bacteria and for someone that's in a critical care unit the last thing they want to do is have a major aberration in their microbiome and start losing whatever anti-inflammatory uh, products they can generate so yeah your situation Alan that you had with your son is very, very common. It took you to be an advocate for your son's health, for your own situation. And it took a care provider, this nurse, that allowed you to, you know, bend the rules a little bit and bring in some outside food. But unfortunately, right. most people don't have your level of education. And quite often, there isn't a health provider there willing to allow outside food in. So the patient who's in a very, very bad place health-wise 
it goes on these uh, very high sugar-containing uh, inflammatory substances. This is why I, I highly recommend that uh, you tell your family what your wishes are in yeah. case Absolutely. <clears throat> you let them know, I, I, I don't want this kind of treatment, I, I want this kind of food. Uh, let them know in advance in case something happens. So you have some uh, food advocate or an advocate that's there to, if you're, uh, let's say, uh, pass out in a coma or whatever, uh, where you're in a situation where you cannot speak for yourself, they should speak for you, Absolutely. you know, whether it's family or, or close friend or, yeah. and that's, I think that's very important because too many times the patients are bullied by the system oh, yeah, and they and they're forced to sign forms without reading them and everything is in a hurry. And that's why we need someone with us to, uh, you know, slow down things, you know, read and, and say, no, we don't, we don't want that. We want this instead, or, you know, we want liquid hope instead of, uh, mm. I mean, that's just an example, but yeah. you know, it, it's very important. Absolutely. Just, just bringing both sort of both of these things that we've been talking about together, sort of the nutrition that, that you provide, and um, the cancer talk that you're going to be doing on the twenty eighth. Obviously, someone who's in hospital, who's, who's having treatment for cancer, but is in such a state they might have throat cancer or something like that, where they can't have normal food, um, they are nine times out of ten if they don't ask for it, they're going to be fed this sugar-rich, uh, commercially um, liquidized shit, if I can put it bluntly. Uh -huh. So really, we, we do need to try and help people understand that a better alternative is available, particularly for treatments, uh, for, or particularly for when people are having cancer treatment, because a sugar-rich diet is only going to do them more harm than good. Absolutely. I, I think people really need to see the clinical research around a ketogenic diet, which is very high fat, very low carbohydrate, and only a small amount of protein, 10% of calories from protein, no more than that. And I think when people really step back and appreciate the clinical evidence around a ketogenic diet, they understand that, wow, you know, there's a lot more we can do than just take chemotherapy and kind of hope for the best. You know, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not saying that it's a cure. I have to be very careful the way, around, the way I word this, but I will say this. If you take a look at the clinical papers on a ketogenic diet for a wide variety of cancers in both animal and in human models, it's very encouraging. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, the um, – how can I put that? The, the hearsay um, testimonies of people yeah. is uh, – Anecdotal. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the word I was looking for, anecdotal. The anecdotal testimony of people is something that can't be ignored anymore because there's I, so much of it. I totally agree, Mark. I think we're at a point now, critical mass in terms of the number of people whose lives have been positively affected by a ketogenic diet. Mm, super. Can you just give us uh, your website details again and also the date of your yeah. um, upcoming uh, talk? Sure. So the website is www.functionalformularies.com. Mm -hmm. That's functional formularies, and the date is July 28th, and it's going to be at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. But I would encourage anyone interested in this talk to go to that functional formularies website and to sign up. Mm -hmm. And I also just want to make a note that we have a regular podcast that we offer. Mark Pettis, who's the dean of UMass's medical system at the University of Massachusetts, um, we have a regular podcast called the thehealthedgepodcast.com where we talk about a variety of uh, very clinical medical topics about once a week. And I, I think people would also maybe find that of use or interest. Super job. And we can get all the details for that, that podcast as well on your website. Uh, the healthedgepodcast.com, right? www.healthedgepodcast.com. Super job. Thank you again, John, for being on the local paleo show. And thank you, thank you for having me, Alan. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. And as we say in Texas, à votre santé, yo. <laughs> <laughs> and...